Well, if we haven't met before, my name is Peter, uh, and I have the privilege of serving as one of the deacons here at the Mountain Church. Uh, and although I was not originally going to be preaching this week, I'm very excited to get to be here and to get to, to bring this passage uh, to you. Uh, originally, I was supposed to be preaching next week, uh, and for those of you that know Daniel, he does a, an awesome job of preparing his sermon schedule out a long time in advance. I think he has it through the rest of the calendar year, if not farther right now. And so he'd asked me to preach, originally the passage we're going to be going over next week, which not to steal from Daniel's thunder, but it's uh, Paul telling Timothy you know, to fight the good fight and then to lead his church well, uh, and ending you know, his really good words of encouragement. Uh, and then at one point, you know, we had some scheduling things change, and he had asked me about preaching this passage. And I was like, that one's not quite as uh, encouraging or happy as the one I get to preach next week. I don't know. And we figured some stuff out, and I was still going to preach next week's passage. But then when his family got hit with COVID this week, uh, it became clear that this is the passage I was going to be preaching in Timothy. <laughs> or as Daniel put it, I can't escape it. <laughs> um, but I'm actually really excited. I am thankful that I had an occasion to, to spend some time uh, on this, this text this week. Uh, I think there's some, some cool things that uh, God has to show us through what Paul is saying here. Uh, all right, so let's go ahead and dive right in. Uh, as our friend Nathan has read for us, we're looking at 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, verses 2b through 10. Uh, I'm just going to walk us back to the text uh, and talk about some of the things that, that Paul is saying there. So starting again in verse 2b, he says, Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. All right. Uh, so kind of interesting that we have that little bit of 2B included in this section. Uh, that's just essentially serving as a transition between thoughts. Paul is closing out the things that he was uh, charging Timothy with uh, at the B, at, through chapter 5 in the very beginning of chapter 6. Uh, and now he's just getting ready to, to move forward with his other thoughts. Uh, and then he picks right back up in verse 3 uh, by listing out some arguments. Uh, or sorry. says that anyone who's teaching something different than... Well, I got all mixed up. Uh, yes. And then directly following that, he dives right in by saying that anyone who's teaching anything that is contrary to the sound doctrine of Christ uh, has been, is a false teacher. Uh, and then he goes and lists out some arguments for why these teachings are false. Paul contrasts the false teachings with the teachings of Scripture by calling it different and in disagreement with the sound doctrine of Jesus and the teachings that accord with godliness. And the term sound here is a, a Greek word which denotes health and being free of errors. So it's not just that the false teachers are teaching incorrect doctrine, but unhealthy doctrine. A common place we might use this word sound is when we're talking about someone being of sound mind, right? If they are sane and in possession of a healthy mental state. And here the argument is being made that if any teachings are being made which do not align with the sound, true, faultless, good teachings of Jesus, then nothing that that teacher is saying can be taken uh, as being good and healthy. 
that they are not of uh, sound mind. They do not have that sound doctrine. And next we see Paul list some of the root sources and causes of these false teachings. Uh, and since it's long, I'm going to reread verses 4 and 5. He says that he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Imagine that godliness is a means of gain. So here Paul is uh, essentially giving us a, a profile for, this, for a type of false teacher, right? Uh, he says that they are conceited, lack understanding, crave controversy and quarrels, which then cause envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who view godliness as a means of gain. But I think it's important to note that Paul first mentions that the false teacher is puffed up with conceit. This is almost kind of like an umbrella statement that the rest of these attributes follow underneath. Uh, and conceit is a, a noun which denotes an illusion. And here, as the conceit is referring to an individual, it is to say that this person who is conceited has a false illusion of themselves. One commentary put it this way. The conceited person is deceived in his views because he is deceived about himself. He regards himself and his own opinions far more highly than he ought to. And this conceit and the distorted level of importance placed on the false teacher's own opinions then bleeds into their desire for controversy and quarrels. They feed their ego and their conceit by arguing the truths of Scripture, constantly introducing conjecture and opinions to God's Word with no basis or false basis in Scripture, all the while spreading slander and evil suspicions among the body, relishing in division. And finally, Paul describes these people as being depraved in mind, deprived of truth, and imagining that godliness is a means of gain. What does that mean? <laughs> uh, means of gain here can mean a couple of different things. In regard to the false teacher himself, it could be describing the pride and power that are to be gained from manipulating a group of people. It could be describing just the general avenue of acquiring wealth through power or the position of power as a teacher. Uh, or Paul could be referencing the false uh, health and wealth gospel, which states that if you put your faith in Jesus uh, and live for him, that you will be blessed with riches and a healthy life. Which one of these Paul specifically referencing, I am not sure of. Uh, but the underlying basis here is that these false teachers and the people that follow them see godliness as a means of acquiring something. And Paul then shows us directly following that that is, that is not true, that it's not a, a means of acquiring something. Uh, but as we'll see here in verse 6, that he says that the godliness is the something that we should be seeking after. Uh, he says, starting in verse 6, he says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Sorry. So here, as I said, Paul is directly refuting the viewpoint uh, of the false teachers at the end of verse 5. He's saying that godliness is not a means of gain, but that godliness with contentment is great gain. 
that these two things combined give us the gift uh, of being satisfied with whatever God has chosen to bless us with. And this kind of contentment is itself a great gain because its satisfaction points us back to the giver of the gift rather than to the gifts that we gained through it. And Paul continues by including a, a piece of ancient wisdom here. He says, For we brought nothing into the world and can take nothing out of it. So they're saying that you know, we are born with nothing and when we die, there's nothing that comes with us. And followed, followed by verse 8, But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. He's essentially combining here logic with the idea of Christian contentment, saying that since we were born with nothing and die with nothing, uh, we, and if we have the basic things we need to live here on earth, food and clothing, what more reason do we have to be discontent and want more? Also adding in that we have God, right? <laughs> uh, we have been given a great gift in godliness and contentment, which allows us to live our lives satisfied by Jesus rather than seeking to store up treasures here on earth, because ultimately he is all that we need. And finally, Paul concludes this section by returning to addressing discontentment, specifically looking at the love of money. Starting in verse 9, he says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And first I want to highlight that what Paul is talking about here is the desire and love of money, not money itself. Uh, money is not inherently bad. It is the desire to acquire money and the love of it, which Paul calls a snare here, as well as a cause of temptation. Paul goes so far as to say that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's no small statement. One commentary put it this way, this desire for money is a snare because it traps the greedy by their own desires. Once the desires are enacted in deeds, they result in ruin and destruction. And this is why Paul warns not against the use of money, but against the illicit and idolatrous desire for it. I think it would follow logic to say that if I have a, a sinful and idolatrous lust for something that is, is not good, that then the things that I would be willing to do to serve that idol or to gain more of it might also be sinful, right? Like that the morals that I would be willing to set aside or the things that I know are wrong that I'd be willing to do to gain more money or to, to store up more money might also be sinful, if we love money, we will do what we must to gain more of it and to store up wealth. And it's this idea that I think Paul is referencing when he describes people plunging into ruin and destruction because of their love of money. So what should we do with this passage, church? Despite my jokes earlier uh, and the first glance gloomy nature of this passage, I think the Holy Spirit has some, some great lessons and thoughts for us here. And as I was studying the passage, I, I really see three big themes present in our text. Uh, and those are false teachers, godliness, and contentment. As I said earlier, I think Paul really does give us a good profile of a type of false teacher here. We see him describe these people as conceited, quarrelsome, 
slanderous, divisive, and not aligned with sound doctrine. And I think that Paul is giving us this tool to identify false teachers among us and is calling us to be on the lookout for these false teachers. Paul describes these men as having a different doctrine than the one taught by Christ, meaning that what they are teaching is not aligned with Scripture, not aligned with the gospel. And going back to Daniel's sermon a few weeks ago on the qualifications for leaders, he said that the life of a church leader should be characterized by the gospel, that their everyday life should reflect the impact that Christ's saving work on the cross has had on their heart, mind, and soul. They should be marked by it, right? They should be set apart by this impact that, that God has had on them. Uh, in a similar line of thought, when you think of a professional athlete, what are some things that come to mind about who they are and about their life? Are they lazy? Are they out of shape? I don't want to offend anybody, but we're not talking about golf players. Uh, no, they are fit. They eat healthy. They practice their sport often to continue getting better and to be at the top of their game. Uh, their life looks different than yours and mine because they're professional athletes and we're not. And connecting that with today's passage, uh, sound doctrine, healthy doctrine should be recognizable by the impact it has on the everyday life of leaders and teachers. Uh, their lives should be marked by this change, by this sound doctrine. So once again, I think Paul is giving us a tool to identify, identify false teachers in our lives. We need to be observing the people of influence in our lives, both in and outside the church, to see if first what they're saying aligns with Scripture, and also if their everyday life aligns with Scripture. And if it's not, then I would venture to say that those are people that might not be appropriate to have as people of influence over you. But I also think this is a question we should be asking of ourselves. Because while Daniel preached on qualifications for leaders, that's not specifically what this passage is about. Sure, you're talking about false teachers, but godliness is something that uh, affects all of us, right? So do our words and lives reflect the impact the gospel and Christ's saving work on the cross has had on us? Sure, there, there definitely is a, a higher level of expectation set for leaders and teachers in the church in Scripture. But as you said before, whether you're a leader or not, our lives should be marked by the impact of what Jesus did on the cross for us. Our lives should reflect the teachings and doctrine of, of Jesus in our everyday lives. We want to be people as followers of Jesus who are marked by godliness and set apart by our salvation. So does the way that you interact with your husband or wife, even behind closed doors, uh, show the impact that Christ's saving work has had on you? Does the way that you engage, discipline, and disciple your children express that you are a new creation in Christ Jesus? Are you set apart in your workplace because you work hard to glorify God and provide for yourself and your family, rather than being motivated by greed and attaining status? In every facet of our lives, we should aim to reflect godliness and for the impact of our salvation to show through in what we do. But one area that Paul specifically highlights of our lives today is contentment. He says that godliness with contentment is great gain. What is not great gain is greed, as Paul says here, 
Remember, uh, Paul says, what does Paul say about greed and love of money? That it is the root of all evil. A snare which plunges people into ruin and destruction. And Ecclesiastes 5 has a section that ties in well with this text today. You are welcome to turn there with me or the words will be on the screen. Uh, Ecclesiastes 5, starting in verse 10, says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his, in, with his income. This is also its vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. And he came from his mother's womb. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? We entered this world with nothing, and we will take nothing with us when we go. So what gain is there for him who toils for the wind? What gain is there for him who toils for something that is so fleeting, that is here one moment and gone the next, that comes and goes and is gone? And even more important, uh, I don't think God wants us out chasing money or possessions, living our life out of greed and wasting our days on this earth seeking to attain wealth or things. If he did, I would venture to say that the entire gospel would look very different, don't you think? Because what is it that sets Christianity apart? It's the fact that we don't earn our salvation. We don't do good works to be saved. We do good works because Jesus has saved us and he has transformed the desires of our heart to show love to others through our lives. Our salvation was free to us. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man can boast. We did nothing to earn our salvation. It was Jesus who paid the price on the cross so that you and I might be saved. And he chose to give us the best gift ever, our salvation and relationship with him. So why would we choose to waste our lives chasing something uh, when we already have the best thing that there ever was? Because Jesus isn't fleeting. He was with us before we were born. He created us. He knew us before we entered this world. And he will be with us when we leave this earth. We have an eternity to spend with him and our Father in heaven. Praise God for the incredible gift of salvation. May we live out of our contentment and fulfillment in him, allowing the impact of what he has done for us to be displayed in our everyday lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for all that you do for us, Lord. Thank you that you offered us salvation out of your love for us, that it is not something we need to work for or earn. Thank you, God, that we get to spend our time on this earth enjoying you and being satisfied by you. Father, I ask that we would be a people marked by godliness, that the impact of what you have done for us would show itself in our everyday lives, and that we would seek to honor and glorify you in all that we do. 
Lord, please protect this church from false teachers. Please help us to identify anyone who seeks to guide us away from your sound doctrine. And please keep the focal points of this church on you and glorifying you. Lord, I thank you for allowing us to to gather this morning, despite the sickness that many in our church have been dealing with. I thank you for this building that you have blessed us with to meet in uh, and for the amazing work on the building by the team of of Crossroads. Uh, What an incredible encouragement uh, that work was and, and that those people are, Lord. Father, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.